We're coming to the end of this series, and just to remind you, uh, as we come to this final passage where John's going to remind us of why he wrote, um, that there are that the reason he was writing this letter is that, uh, that, that there'd been a split in the church, some people had left. He's addressing this question of how can we know that what we've got is the real thing? We haven't got a cheap knockoff of Christianity, but we've got authentic Christianity. That what we're dealing with is the real thing. And he says there are three tests, and I've gone over this and gone over this, so I won't uh, belabor the point. But essentially what he's saying is you know it's real Christianity when it adheres to what the apostles taught and we have in the New Testament. You can't make Christianity up as you go along. It was settled what the teaching of Christianity was by Jesus and the the apostles that he commissioned to lay down Christian teaching in the New Testament. Secondly, you know it's authentic Christianity when it's evidenced by an experience of God's love in the individual that leads them to love the Christian community around them. And you know you've got the real deal when you look inside and you can see God is working on your heart. And although you're not perfect, and no one is this side of uh, meeting Jesus face to face, you know inside that Jesus is changing you. He is touching you. He is transforming you so that you have a sense that God is your father and you love him and that love kind of spills out and you find it increasingly hard to bear resentment and unforgiveness and judgmentalism and increasingly you feel as though you just want to wrap your arms around the world and tell them about Jesus. And thirdly, you know it's the real thing when it issues in a lifestyle of genuine obedience to God and holiness, when pleasing God becomes more important to you and the community is marked by uh, a determination to be obedient to God. Not to ask the question, well, now that I'm a Christian, let's just see how you know, what can I get away with? Instead of asking those questions, you begin to ask, how can I please God? If he sent his son into this world to die for me, then he only has to ask and I'll do my best. Of course, we have limitations. Of course, we fail at times. But authentic Christianity is marked by a deep and heartfelt desire to be obedient to what God is asking of us. All right, that's how we know what we've got is the real thing. And this is a serious business because in our age, just like any other age, there are versions of Christianity that fail these tests. They owe more to uh, a, a person's ideas than they do to the apostles. They owe more to adapting Christianity so it doesn't offend the culture around, as we'll see Uh, This morning, that idea is doomed to failure. They owe more to a desire to be approved of exactly how I'm living now than a genuine desire to obey what God is asking of me. All right. So it's important that we understand what is authentic Christian faith and what is a cheap knockoff. Because in the end, the cheap knockoffs might make you feel better because Christianity is tough, you know. Jesus doesn't pull his punches. He expects 
a lot from us in many respects. And the cheaper versions of Christianity might make you, make you feel better instantaneously. But ultimately, it's only the truth of the gospel that can set you free. All right. Next slide, please. John starts by saying this in this little passage that we're looking at at the end of his letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And for those of you who know your Bibles well, uh, this will resonate with what he says at the end of his gospel, John's gospel, where he says a very similar thing. His goal here is that people feel confident in their faith, that they know Christ, they know they're in Christ, they know they are safe forever in him, that they have eternal life, not just eternal in its quantity, that it will go on forever, although that is the promise, but also in its quality, that it bears the mark of eternity, that even now we're starting to live a life, as John himself said, uh, quoting Jesus, that is life in all its fullness. It's not life that is uh, engaged in a hopeless quest uh, that by living more and more selfishly and indulging more and more of my own desires that I'll somehow start to feel great about everything. Paradoxically, that only ever leads to feeling worse and worse about things. But it's a life that is marked by a deep desire to please up my creator and live in the way that he wants me to. And in so doing... Uh, discover the underlying purpose of life, loving others and taking my place in the community. And as I embrace the teaching of Jesus, and as I engage with what it means to be a child of God and being obedient and grasping the teaching of the New Testament, I begin to develop a deep inner conviction that God is my Father and I'm safe forever. Um, knowledge is a complicated business. The philosophers and theologians debate how we can know anything and whether we can know anything. You might know the famous saying of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It was only because he could think that he thought it was possible even to know that he existed. Well, if we leave the ideas of philosophy to one side for one moment, although they're important, they're important things really, how do we know anything for certain? Well, I could give you the, the long version of that because that's a very important question. I'll just give you the short version. Welcome to come and see me if you want the longer discussion. Um, and that's this. Most of the things we say we know, we would struggle to prove. But that's not to say we don't have strong inner conviction. So how do you develop a strong inner conviction that Christianity is true? I want to give you three reasons. I think there are more, but as I reflect on it, I think these are the three most important uh, reasons why we can be confident in Christianity. Number one, the apostles. I've said this many times, but it's important to remind you, the guys who gave their testimony, John and Peter and Paul and all of the others, they faced persecution for their testimony about Jesus Christ. In fact, John, who wrote this letter, was the only one who ultimately wasn't martyred out of the apostles. They all gave their lives. And so we can have confidence in their testimony because they were willing to give the most precious thing they had, their life itself, for this testimony. When in their discovery of Jesus, his teaching, his life, the miracles, 
his death, his resurrection, most significantly of all, his ascension into heaven, they gave testimony to this. They were united in their testimony. And when put under pressure to recant, they preferred to give their lives than recant. You can trust their testimony, reason number one. Reason number two, I've already alluded to, that when you begin to follow Christianity, it works. It doesn't make life perfect, but it gives you a foundation for living life that is far stronger than the alternatives. Furthermore, you will have observed this, I am sure, that Christianity can make bad people good. And it can make good people better. It works. When something works, that is an indication that it's true. If I gave you um, a manual for fixing your car, and, uh, and you didn't know whether this manual was actually the correct manual, but in the absence of knowing, absence of having any other guidance, you started to follow the guidance. So when your car broke down, you looked it up in the book and you followed it. And every time it proved to be effective, at some point you would conclude that this is true. I've got the correct manual for my car. The same is true for Christianity. Those of you who have uh, put your trust in Jesus can say with the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not. I, don't, I, I, I haven't... Um, I haven't always managed to follow Jesus as I should. But I do know this, like the blind man, I can say that once I was blind, but now I see. Once my life was a mess, but now my life feels stable. If we trust God, we will never be put to shame. Reason number two. Reason number three, observe the world outside of Christ. Observe those folk you know who've turned their back on Christ and see where it has led. This is really just the converse of the previous point. When we're Christians, when we give ourselves to God, he begins to order our lives. He come in, comes into our life as a father and he begins to order it. If you don't follow Christ, in the absence of the Holy Spirit, when we reject his leading, life begins to disintegrate. Well, I'd love to spend more time thinking about that uh, and answer, no doubt, many objections that occur to you, but um, we, we need to move on. Um, John goes on that not only does he want you and me to have a deep inner conviction that we have life that is truly life, eternal life, life in all its fullness... He wants us to have confidence in God. Next slide, please. Now, many of you, as I look out, are, I, I know many of you, and quite a lot of you are gifted people. You've got, you know, a lot of personal ability. Some of you may feel very self-confident. You think, yeah, you put me in any situation, I'm all right. I can handle it. Uh, I can fall back on my own resources. And others of you maybe don't feel like that at all. And probably more commonly, there are things we feel confident about and other situations where we don't feel confident. Um, and we wrestle between the two. And, um, and that would certainly be true of me. Some situations I feel confident, some I don't. But the journey of Christianity is a journey of putting less focus on ourselves and more confidence in God. God wants you to be very confident, not because of who you are, but because of who God is, right? 
He doesn't want us racked with anxiety and doubt all the time, although if that is your experience, God is compassionate to you and he wants to lead you out of it. But neither does he want us floating around the place as if we're the best thing since sliced bread, because if that's who you think you are, you're not. You just don't know it yet. He wants you to put your trust in him. There's an Old Testament uh, scholar called Walter Bruegemann. He wrote a very long book on the theology of the Old Testament, which I plowed through, about 800 pages. The only thing I remember from the whole book, it's bad, isn't it? Uh, The only thing I remember is this. He said, very wise words, self-reliance is only ever a whisker away from despair. Because when you're trusting yourself at some point, you will run into your own shortcomings. And great will be the fall. We need to learn to put our trust in God. And John's aspiration in writing this letter is so that we'd know we have eternal life from God. We'd have a deep inner conviction that we're safe forever with God. And that we would grow confident as we face life. Because we are confident that God has us in his hand, no matter what we are facing. And we know that when we pray, he hears us. And when we pray according to his will, he will answer us. Now, in the middle of the passage, John starts to reflect then on prayer, and particularly the role of prayer when you're dealing with a brother or sister who is misbehaving. Um, so the, uh, the old-fashioned word, of course, is sin. And uh, he says, if you observe your brother or sister sinning, he says you should pray for them. Now, the, the New Testament actually says a fair bit about how to handle it when brothers and sisters in the, within the church are sinning. And uh, we don't have time to go through it all today. But here what John says is you should pray for them. So could I, could I have the next slide, please? Um, now, if you're in church and you observe somebody doing something wrong, okay, unless it actually personally affects you, you're probably inclined to just turn a blind eye to it and think, okay, well, you know, maybe you, you know, you're holy enough and humble enough to say, well, I'm a sinner too, I shouldn't be judgmental, let them get on with it. When you're the pastor, it's a whole different world because you're kind of responsible for everything that goes on. And um, it's my job to be a good shepherd, under Jesus, and that means occasionally pointing something out to somebody that they don't want to hear. And my experience has often been, sadly, uh, and I take comfort in the fact Jesus had the same experience, very often people don't want to have their faults pointed out to them, right? I guess nobody does. And um, I've come to the conclusion that when I see somebody doing something wrong in church, particularly if it affects me, but even if it doesn't, as the pastor, my response is this, that this means war. But spiritual war, right? And recognizing you're not fighting against individuals, you're fighting against evil forces that are trying to lure people into bad behavior. So prayer for those who are not living as they should. I hear lots of reports People sometimes feel they need to come and tell me what they've observed in someone else. Uh, I always say to them, right, well, let's go and confront them together, shall we? No, they say, no, no, whoa, 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 whoa. I say, well, can I quote you when I speak to them? No, no, you cannot. I'm just telling you. I think, well, thank you very much. That's really useful information. Incidentally, I treat that as gossip. 
unless you're prepared to put your name to it and speak to them, it's gossip. Okay, and I don't take it, I, I don't pay any attention to it. But I do pray. I have a little list of people, uh, a growing list uh, of people um, that I, I, I think, Lord, I've observed something in their life that I don't think is right. And so I'm going to pray about it. And um, I fully accept I may be on other people's lists, by the way. This isn't meant to be judgmental. We're all sinners. But John is instructing us here, if you see something wrong in someone else, at the very least, pray about it. Okay? Pray for them. You need that prayer too. But then John starts down a road which makes every pastor groan. Because a sensitive soul reading this is, is going to be upset. Because he says there's some sins. He seems to divide sin into two categories. Next slide, please. Sin, he says, that doesn't lead to death. And sin that does lead to death. And furthermore, he says, you, if you see someone doing the former, a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for them and, and there's hope that God will, will, will forgive them of their sin and they'll be restored. But if they're sinning in a way that leads to death, whatever that means, don't even bother praying for them. That's what he seems to say. And we're all sitting here very uncomfortable because I think that doesn't really sit very well with our evangelical theology. We, we, you know, we've been taught all sin is the same. Well, John is no doubt thinking about the context in which this was written, that some people have abandoned this church and gone off and taught a different form of Christianity, a cheap knockoff, as I said. And he no doubt has those folk in mind. Maybe they have different ethical standards. Maybe they're saying, oh, well, God, God doesn't mind if you do this or that. And, and John is speaking into that. And he's saying there is a type of deliberate disobedience of God that if somebody is deliberately and with, a, with self-consciously rejecting God's standards or rejecting Christian teaching, there comes a point at which they're going beyond the boundaries of Christian faith. Um, Howard Marshall puts it like this, sin leads to death is deliberate refusal to believe in Jesus Christ and, and the apostles' testimony concerning him, deliberate refusal to follow God's commands, deliberate refusal to love one's brothers and sisters. Now, when we become Christians, we carry all sorts of baggage. When I became a Christian, for example, I was a smoker. Now, I think smoking is sin. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you've got some... I can't see how it isn't. I think it damages your health, and you know it, and you're, not supposed, you're supposed to look after the body God's given you, and we know it's extremely damaging to health, and it also involves giving quite a lot of money to some very unscrupulous people. I don't think God would have us do that either. It, others have different opinions as Christians, but I think smoking is sin. Now, I was a smoker, so every time I picked up a cigarette after I was a Christian, because it didn't stop immediately, I believe I was sinning. So does that mean I wasn't a Christian? No. Because like almost every adult smoker, I didn't want to do it. But I was addicted to smoking at the time. Now, thanks be to God, at some point, it's a bit of a story actually, and I'm happy to tell it to you sometime, but we don't have time this morning. Um, uh, God brought me out of that in quite a miraculous way, actually. 
But what if I'd have, like some Christians, just carried on struggling with that until my dying day? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Is that a sin that leads to death? It's probably a bit of a bad example because it in all likelihood would lead to physical death or it might well do. But I don't think that's what John's talking about. He's not talking about where we long to serve God and we long to do what he says, but we struggle. He's talking about when I begin to say, do you know what? I like smoking. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it. Or I come up with some contorted understanding of Christianity that enables me to say, I think God's changed his mind about this, or I, think, I don't really think God minds. That is what John is talking about, when someone self-consciously refuses to live as a Christian or refuses to accept Christian teaching. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul, just a parallel, and Paul is quite fond of doing this. He says certain lifestyles are simply incompatible with Christian faith. You cannot go on living like that and claim to be a Christian. He says this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are living a lifestyle defined by sin, where you're adopting the identity of sin and you're saying, I don't care what God says, I'm doing this defiantly, you're not a Christian. If you struggle to live up to God's ethical demands, then join the rest of us. That's what the cross is all about. But there is a distinction between those who sin out of weakness and those who self-consciously and deliberately leave Christian teaching behind. That is a distinction I think John is making. He goes on to say then, right at the end here, some things that we can have a deep inner conviction about, we can know, and are central to Christian faith. First of all, Anyone born of God does not continue in a lifestyle of sin because Jesus keeps them safe from Satan. Satan wants to trap you in a destructive lifestyle of sin and make you defend it even as it's killing you. Jesus comes to say, I will forgive you your failures, but I'm calling you out of that lifestyle. Secondly, we are God's children. We know we are the children of God. I hope that's your experience. I hope that when you pray, and I hope you do pray, you have a sense of God's Father love for you. I just want to draw one conclusion. He says, we know we are God's children. We live in a highly individualistic culture. As you look around the church, and by that I mean the congregation, the people, if you're going to be a Christian at all, you have to remember it's not just you who gets to be God's child, but everyone else as well. The Lord's Prayer starts with the words, Our Father. So accept each other as Christ has accepted you. Accept each other as brothers and sisters because we are all God's children in the church. May that be 
the spiritual reality that is the foundation of your life and my life. Thirdly, the whole world, we're told, the whole world system is under Satan's control. I don't think this is preached enough. I think in previous generations it was preached too much and it led to thinking that anything outside of church is wicked. And that isn't true. But the world system as a whole, and you only have to switch on the news for five minutes and the evidence is there in front of you, is largely controlled by wickedness, not goodness. This world is not our home. We're traveling to the new creation. Do not love the world, John says. You only have to switch on the TV for 10 minutes where clever marketeers will be trying to make you dissatisfied with what you have and get you to buy stuff you don't need to impress people you don't like. You only have to go on the internet for 10 minutes and you will find all sorts of things being presented to your eyes. Uh, very tempting that you, you would be much better off avoiding. Don't be enamored by this world. There's much of beauty that God has created, but there's also much that has been corrupted. Don't be enamored of that corruption. Don't hanker for things that are not good. Because in the middle of this world, Jesus has come and revealed the true God. And we are in him. And we have eternal life. These should be the founding realities of your life and my life. Please, God, let it be so. And John's final few words. Strange way to end the letter, but perhaps it underlines how important this is. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself, as the New Living Translation puts it, from anything that might God take God's place in your heart. What has the affection of your heart? What is it you really want in life? What is the thing that you put first? If I, looked at, if I looked at how you'd spent the week, or if you looked at how I'd spent the week or the last month and looked at the time that's been given to different things, or if I looked at your bank statement, or you looked at mine, what would, what would we conclude is the most important thing to you? If we hanker for things, if, if underneath it all, our desire is shaped by this world and the silly things that people give their lives for, If that's what we're after, we're not Christians. Authentic Christian faith is the worship of God. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. They just manufacture them. We've, no, we've, not, we've just dealt with one and there's another one springing up. Our affections are fickle. And that's why we come to church each week and worship, because we need to be reminded Keep yourselves from idols. Keep close to God in prayer. Read his word and embrace the teaching of the apostles and bring your life 
into orbit around it. Love your brothers and sisters. Forgive them when they offend you. Pray for them in their shortcomings. Let's be that authentic Christian community together. God bless you.